gentlemen, here's a question for you. What's a performance you love from an actor that you're not particularly fond of? Yeah, so uh, generally speaking, I have no real use, um, much like most people do in 2020, uh, no real use for Ryan O'Neal. But um, Barry Lyndon? Yeah, okay. Uh, Love Story? Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, that dead-eyed freak can fall in love with anything. Um, Paper Moon? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tatum O'Neill's acting circles around you. Um, but I will say, uh, Walter Hill was the only guy who was really able to understand that Ryan O'Neill is a dead eyed block of wood and created a character that actually fit that, that dullard persona he has and, uh, made the driver. And, uh, yeah, Ryan O'Neill's good in the driver because he doesn't really have to act and he just lets Bruce Dern do all of the acting. Uh, because by the end of the movie, there's no scenery left because Bruce Dern ate it all. Do you know he was on Bones? Who? Ryan O'Neill. I mean, sure, he needed some money to uh, go down to the liquor store. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, so, and he was in Knight of Cups, apparently? I mean, I think everyone in Hollywood was in Knight of Cups at some point bef- during an edit. So for me, I, I was originally, I originally had a different answer, and then I was talking to my family about it and kind of got corrected a bit. I was going to say Elizabeth Taylor, because I've never really been an Elizabeth Taylor person, the exception of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But I was talking it over with the family uh, and uh, kind of got corrected on how many uh, Elizabeth Taylor performances I hadn't yet seen. And I, I think that would be unfair of me to say that. Uh, I am going to throw out somebody, though, that I've been watching a lot of lately uh, in prep for this show, how I kind of watch uh, other Best Picture nominees, you know, to go along with them. To that degree, I, I have to say it's an actress named Greer Garson. Greer Garson, uh, I've watched a, a number of uh, her films, Blossoms in the Dust, Random Harvest, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. And I just don't find her particularly compelling, um, particularly Blossoms in the Dust, which is her in the lead. And I just I was so bored of that that film. I She just uh, did nothing for me. I did not find her a particularly compelling performer. That said, she's the lead in a film that we'll be covering on this podcast uh, in a future season called Mrs. Miniver, Best Picture Winner uh, by William Wyler. And no one has ever owned an entire film the way she does in this movie. It is such a commanding and incredibly engrossing lead performance. And I, I just found it so funny because that was the first thing I had seen her in. And I've gone back since to watch her in other things and just she does not have that moment. It's just such a lightning in a bottle thing where I, I think she's absolutely exceptional in Mrs. Miniver and yet I have not enjoyed her in anything else I've seen. Any Greer Garson thoughts, Tom? Uh, no, other than are you making that name up? <laughs> Don't just stand in that there doorway, Pilgrim. We're talking 1956's The Searchers here on You're Missing Out with special guest Sierra Webb. Hi, everyone. Uh, This episode, we are joined by a good friend of ours. Uh, If you listen to our old show, uh, you know her. She was sort of our permanent guest host on the old version of You're Missing Out, filling in whenever Tom or I. Uh, was absent. She's a former co-worker of ours and a very dear friend, and I knew we had to have her on for something for season one. I'm so glad she's here. Uh, Sierra Webb is joining us. Hello, everybody. It's me. <laughs> uh, 
Thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Now, I will let folks know that I did not. Uh, this was not a case where I sent you the whole list. I, I asked you to come on for this film and for a number of reasons. Um, one is that we always talked about, you know, you being a fan of Westerns when you were, you know, watching Westerns where you were younger. You are also from Texas, where this film is set and 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 some points shot. And so I thought that would be interesting. And there's only two Westerns in the registry's inaugural year and uh, High Noon and The Searchers, which are kind of the, the quintessential Westerns of time. So uh, especially after Kenny Narbrett picked High Noon and I knew we had the Texas connection, we had a whole bunch of connections in there. Uh, I asked you to come on for this one. And uh, much to my uh, egg on my face, I guess uh, you had not seen it before. <laughs> no, I hadn't. Now, I want to talk a little bit just uh, for the sake of our audience. Let's talk a little bit about you and uh, your background when it comes to movies and, and your relationship to cinema in general, because I was a I was a film school kid. Tom was a film school kid, but you were not a you were not a film school kid. Per se. No, I mean, my like the two of you, you guys went to film school and you studied it. My approach to film was always just kind of like a very willing uh, viewer so like you put me down in front of any movie i would sit there and watch it and uh like enjoy it so i mean you could call me just a just a fan but i i think i was like an intense fan like i was like very very into movies it was kind of like uh my parents sat me down in front of their favorite movies as kind of a parenting technique <laughs> like all right well uh the girl is taken care of because she's in front of the tv so let's go do stuff other than this but yeah so like i have a very diverse um diverse viewing history but um one of the things that my mother always put me in front of was her favorite genre which is the western but yeah i just never saw this one and i actually haven't seen any john ford movies other than she wore a yellow ribbon and and you've also you know even when you were on our show um you know you've you've branched out in what you've watched i mean i'm trying to think uh when you were on our show, I know uh, Tom had you watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah, hadn't seen that one either. Another Western. <laughs> um, I had you watch O Hazard Balthazar. Yeah. Uh, I made the, her also watch Cruising. I was building up you to that. Son I of was. A bitch. I, that felt like that felt like a build up. You yeah. son of a um, bitch. Well, it was. I mean, that was kind of weirdly, uh, if I may, and I, I hope you don't mind a bit of a complimentary anecdote, Sarah. <laughs> but I, I think the first time you guessed it on a show was it was you and Tom trying to decide. You know, the old format of the show was each host pick something for the other to watch, and the episode you were filling in on happened to take place during Pride Month. That's right. So you guys decided that would be a theme, and you had Tom watch Imagine Me and You, such a good um, movie, the, the romantic comedy. And Tom decided to have you watch uh, William Friedkin's Cruising, a film that I'm gonna I'm gonna make a statement right now. Uh, Shot in the dark will never make the National Film Registry. Um, oh, you 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 think? Uh, so he had you watch Cruising, and it was an endurance test of look at how absurd this this film is, and right. and um, and so when it came around to you and I doing an episode. I picked Robert Bresson's O Hazard Balthazar because you had talked about not really watching a lot of French cinema, not really watching, or at least French New Wave, I should say. Right. Uh, I mean, know. yeah, I'd, I had seen French cinema, but never any New Wave. Yeah. And so I thought, I was thinking of like, oh, what what is something that Sierra would probably never pick up of her own volition, but I think she'll really click with. But for like the month leading up to the episode, you were looking at the cover 
and reading up on this like it just follow it's a black and white movie it follows a donkey and you thought i was doing something similar i think you're like i don't think i'm gonna have anything to say on this i'm not gonna have a take on this i don't know what i'm gonna do with this i'm gonna sound dumb and sure enough we sat down to do the episode and we spent the majority of it uh with you talking about what you vibed with in this film and how you connected with it emotionally right. and and you you really felt something with it um and then the second half of the episode of course was um about broken lizard super troopers which uh neither of us really uh vibed with that time around oh, God. um you know and then uh yes but so I, I say that to your credit, that, that it was something where you looked at that and kind of went, I don't know, but you went in with an open mind and, and really found something uh, right to connect with on that one, which is... So let me, let me actually know. just go touch base to those that hadn't listened to the episode. I was trying to punish you with Super Troopers, mm-hmm. and I ended up punishing myself. Because you, you, uh, you got a different uh, vibe of what the show was because of the cruising one where you kind of thought like, oh, this is a chance to really rib each other and i was like no 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 no. we're gonna take this seriously we're gonna have a you know we're gonna really get into this and so then by the time the third episode came around and it was you and tom again uh, and this time you know you had him watch disney's animated mulan because yeah. there was not a live action Mulan at the time uh and he had you watch good man the ugly and it kind of came back around to like oh no this is just people who really like movies talking about movies they really like like that's kind of yeah the evolution of that on the show and so when i knew we were doing this new show uh i wanted to bring you on for that because that's kind of what our whole modus operandi is here is is taking the opportunity to look at films that have been put in this registry and 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 why they have and and us trying to come to a conclusion of why these things have value why they're in there you know and i i think that that's something that like i said you know sometimes we bring guests on who are folks who have just studied cinema and they just know like i am the most passionate human being about citizen kane you know i know it's better but like the journey you took with Oh Hazard Balthazar or Good the Bad and the Ugly where you kind of did have to watch it and go like all right let me figure out where my where I ride this wavelength which is what I'm so excited for with this especially cuz you have not seen much John Ford uh I I have seen a, a good deal and I've 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 watched uh quite a bit recently in prep for this um Tom I know is is uh this this prepping for this episode sent Tom down a John Ford rabbit hole from which he will not likely emerge anytime soon. Um, nah, it's gonna be a while. And I'm and I'm so so happy about that. Um, John Ford is an interesting director. Uh, I'm gonna do just a little overview quick before we get into the movie itself. But John Ford is an interesting director. He uh, won four uh, directing Oscars uh, in his time. He is the most represented. Uh, filmmaker in the National Film Registry, 11 of the films he directed, uh, or at least partially directed in the case of How the West Was Won, 11 of the films he directed are in the National Film Registry. The Iron Horse, The Informer, Stagecoach, Young Mr. Lincoln, The Grapes of Wrath, How Green Was My Valley, My Darling Clementine, The Quiet Man, The Searchers, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and How the West Was Won. And also, uh, a dedication uh, in Unforgiven. It's He's had a, you know, he's a fascinating filmmaker whose career went from the silent films of 1917 through to the Technicolor era of the late 60s. Um, and he's also represented twice in this inaugural year uh, with two very different films, because, of course, we have The Searchers, which is the Western, which he's most associated with. But then also this season alone, we've got The Grapes of Wrath, the uh, Steinbeck adaptation. And those feature his two 
most frequent leading men collaborators uh, with The Grapes of Wrath, it's Henry Fonda, with whom he did a number of films, including Young Mr. Lincoln. Uh, and of course, in this, The Searchers, his most iconic pairing and indeed his most polarizing, which is John Wayne. Why is John Wayne controversial? But I, I even setting aside Wayne's personal politics, he is a polarizing figure in terms of you either vibe with his on-screen persona or you don't. He is quintessentially a movie star. You know, he is a guy who he's not a chameleon by any stretch of the imagination. He is, uh, you know, uh, as Tom and I were discussing, we were texting back and forth earlier today about uh, some of John Wayne's roles. And it's, you know, whether it's, uh, well, hi there, uh, I'm Rooster Cogburn. Next movie. Well, hey there, I'm Ethan Edwards. Okay, and next film, hi there, I'm Genghis Khan. Like, you're not really seeing a lot of Ranger. He's a movie star, and that movie star persona is, you know, your mileage may vary on it. But this is the film, I think the reason this film has lasted more than most of Ford's films, and we're going to get into this, but part of it is the fact that this comes later in their pairing and sort of examines that persona a bit. So there's a lot to dive into with this one. And we are going to start, uh, as always, by talking about why the National Film Registry believes it should go in. Their statement on the film is, Considered by many to be Ford's best film, it is equal parts majestic spectacle and soul-searching moral examination that anticipated the complex themes and characters that would dominate films of the 70s. John Wayne, a Confederate soldier, returns after the war to find his niece has been kidnapped by Comanches and sets out to find her, not to rescue her but to destroy what he sees as a creature no longer human. Is the film intended to endorse the racist attitudes of the main character, John Wayne, or to dramatize and regret them? Today we see it through enlightened eyes, but in 1956, many audiences accepted its harsh view of Indians. New York Magazine called it the most influential movie in American history. So, you know, some of the times uh, when we read these statements... Uh, as Tom and, and Kyle can attest, sometimes when we read these statements from the registry, uh, they end up just being synopses of the plot. Huh. Uh, when we did uh, Singing on the Rain, it literally was just telling you what happens in the movie. Whereas this statement very clearly kind of goes out of its way to go, there is a lot to dive into with this one, a lot to chew on. I think the most interesting parallel, and I, I want to start with this uh especially Sierra, but like all of us, you know, grew up with some kind of Western. We enjoy some degree of Western. I think it's interesting that it points out that this film is kind of the genesis of a lot of the complex themes and the antiheroes and the examination of America's legacy that dominates the seventies. Because, you know, I was watching a special feature on the DVD where Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese and John Milius, three men with three very different outlooks on the country and on cinema um, all talked about this film and what they enjoyed about this film and how influential it was. Uh, so I want to start by just talking about th that, the, the suggestion that this film is sort of a genesis point for the complexities of 70s films and beyond and sort of that, I guess, the idea of the anti-hero in a way. We, like as a society, have just gone to the point where we absolutely love a story where we kind of hate the main character. I mean, look at, look at like, um, hold on, I'm gonna hold for a second because my cat's scratching. 
in this litter oh. box. You probably don't want this. No, you know what? Never mind. Just explain the cat. Explain the cat. Tell yeah. people about oh. the cat. Tell them we have another guest in the show. Oh yeah, the other the other guest in this show who's making his himself apparent is Mr. Marcus, who's actually named after a city in Texas. Just making a lot of noise over there. So like we we as a society we absolutely love heroes that we kind of hate, but like you know so often it's it's easy to get lost in like oh but that guy was cool like oh Tony Soprano he's my guy and like some like audiences often don't see what the filmmaker or whoever is is trying to portray this person as um, but yeah like this is definitely the earliest. A depiction of the anti-hero that I've seen in, in any type of film. It's definitely, at least for the Western, because um, as me and Mike in the last week, or just in general with the movies we watch, have been watching more John Ford movies, you can see from, let's say, Stagecoach uh, up into in between the searchers, there is a gener- genuine sense of Ford starting to push up against the sort of moral clarity of the older era of movies to the point where you can slowly chip away at that, add some moral ambiguity, add some of that sort of uh, anti-hero uh, storytelling until you could full-on get, with all of the clout of a John Ford picture with John Wayne in 1956, 57, that you can go, okay, now... I can, you know, tell a story about a guy without holding your hand, but still being clear enough to say, this guy, your aesthetically prototypical Western hero, is actually kind of a racist, violent monster who is kind of the golem we need to get this, the the goal we have in mind achieved, but is someone who you maybe wouldn't want in your house with normal society. You know, I think uh, a lot of that is because of Ford's, we'll get, I mean, you know, I'm sure we're going to get this Ford's awakening during the war, but um, also just the world, the world's awakening of, I don't know, even in the 50s, things were, information was traded a lot more freely than it was in 1939 when he made Stagecoach. And a lot had happened in the world and we're starting to slowly get to the era of the United States where maybe we're starting to wrangle with the fact that we're not actually the the wrangling, rootin' tootin' cowboy heroes we've mythologized ourselves to be. I think that's one of the many, many reasons why The Searchers hit so big at the time and has, uh, throughout its um controversies uh, in 2020, uh, still... Mm-hmm. Uh, stands pretty well in in pretty high regard today. I I want to touch on that, you know, while we're we're here what Tom was saying about Ford's shift because we try so often uh, when we're talking about artists and their careers, we try so often to put a narrative on them. The entirety of the auteur theory um that we now treat as law, but uh so many people kind of rejected that. Uh, you know, I think I remember uh, hearing that Joan Crawford thought the idea of the Ator theory was absolutely stupid because she's like, you know, so many people work on movies. You can't just chalk it up to one person's art. But when we do the Ator theory and we try and look at things through that lens, we so often sort of 
shave things or omit things to kind of craft a narrative, you know? So often when you're talking about a filmmaker's career and you're trying to talk about, oh, well, this happened and then their entire attitude changed forever, you very often have to go, well, except that one movie, I don't know what that was about, or except this, I don't know what that was about. But with Ford, it's impossible not to see the narrative of when he goes off to war. He um, is one of the directors who was sent over. If anyone hasn't seen, we've already mentioned it on the show when Alec was joining us, but if anyone hasn't seen Five Came Back, the Netflix miniseries about the directors who went to war, I highly recommend it. Um, when Ford came back from World War II and had witnessed the uh, not just the atrocities of the Nazis, but particularly their propaganda, you know, I mean, so many of these these filmmakers uh, who we sent over there had to witness this stuff. I mean, Frank Capra made his prelude to war film just utilizing uh, Japanese and uh, Nazi propaganda films. So they saw this stuff and they saw the power of their medium being used to propagate hate. And I think that especially Ford, when he came back, had a real reckoning about what his own work and his own medium uh, had done. And you see it littered throughout every film he does since that there is just a lot more ambiguity and and uh, conflict uh, you know, whether it's what we're talking about today with the searchers, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, his final film, Cheyenne Autumn, which is entirely about, uh, as much as it's about anything, cause it is kind of a mess, but it is, you know, reconciling with, uh, directly the mistreatment of Native Americans in, uh, in our, uh, cavalry history. And, uh, of course you have the man who shot Liberty Valance, which features that great line. Uh, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend, which is this ultimate takedown of how absurd our idea of Western heroes are and why those lies are so propagated. And uh, Tom, you recently watched uh, another film of his, uh, Ford Apache, you were telling me about. Yeah, that was his uh, first Western after the war, his third picture in general after coming back from the war. And I mean, maybe even more so than The Searchers. I haven't seen Cheyenne Autumn yet, but you know, you go from stagecoach and then, you you know, you go to his, this is his next Western and you just, I mean, it's just night and day. It's not even subtle. You have him give John Wayne, John Wayne is without doubt clearly the hero in that, that movie of him. They go to this um, merchant who's kind of supposed to be in charge of the reserve where um, the Apache headed by Cochise was supposed to be, but they left. And he goes on a rant saying, yeah, this uh, interest group sent him over here. And instead of giving them bread, he gave them whiskey. Instead of giving them, uh, you know, a bed, he gave them blankets with diseases he left the men drunken animals. He They degraded the women. They left the children sick. What else was a good man supposed to do when they treated his people like this? And you go, holy fucking Christ. This is like, he's like, yeah, he's, he, this is a movie that is giving America and a good chunk of the military the business about how they treated Native Americans. And any question anybody had about the searchers, because the searchers is much more ambig- ambiguous. There isn't much didactic speechifying about the treatment of natives in the movie. You just got to watch Ford Apache and go, oh, this is a man who is 
doing something different and is very passionate about the subject matter he is tackling because this isn't really like what Westerns were back then. Even after the war, he was kind of the only guy really saying, hey, we kind of fucked the Indians over in a big way. Native American, excuse me, but in the parlance of the times, Indians. Yeah. I mean, yeah, at least it it's... He seems to try to make amends for his missteps in the past. And, like, I think that's, like, I'm always somebody that's going to appreciate an attempt at growth. Even if it was kind of subtle in The Searchers. Like, I, we're not from the 50s. We don't know for sure. We can read what a history book said, but we don't know for sure how the the audiences of 1956 we can't like the people walking out of the theaters. I can tell you right now that I'm pretty damn sure that my grandfather wouldn't have walked out of that movie and thought that John Wayne was the bad guy. If we're being completely honest, my grandfather also wasn't a great guy, but you know, that's, that's kind of where I, I see it. I think people would have missed the subtlety in that movie specifically if they always loved John Wayne. And I think it might also just be because, I mean, listen, the audience and how they react to a movie is still a problem we have today. I mean, you could go back a year or whatever to something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and how people got all twisted up about that. Or you could go back to maybe the most influential sci-fi movie the last 25 years, 20 years, The Matrix, and how it's a movie clearly about anti-fascism and you'll have fascist idiots go oh see this is about us it hates the it hates the libs it hates those sjw's but i think this movie's subtle it's going to get a lot of bad faith readings by people who are going to twist it and turn it to be about yeah those natives are animals and they need to be shot and destroyed and if a white lady lays with them she needs to be shot too but i think kind of in a similar discussion we're going to have later this week in a movie where we're going to record about a movie we're going to record maybe audiences just weren't ready for a movie this subtle in 1956 with a star who wasn't particularly very subtle in his acting and somebody had to do it first i mean there's got there's going to be stumbling blocks with when you try to make uh the first attempt at something new and you know i don't know yeah i'm sure i'm sure even today yeah you show somebody the searchers somebody that's not trying to misread it because they're trying to play the politics game somebody who knows nothing about john ford nothing about John Wayne, and they just sit down, they might just come out and be like, oh yeah, this movie kind of is racist. And you go, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, I can't I mean, really... it's, it's easy to take that away from it. Yeah. Well, but that's, I mean, and that's a larger issue of just, um, you know, we talk about media literacy quite a lot. And, you know, you can only get out of a work of art what, what you are willing to. But at the same time, I, I partly I want to push back on this. I'm not even and I don't mean to uh, criticize the Library of Congress, but I do not even love the way they're framing it in their their statement. I kind of hate this attitude that we have about the past, uh, where we always view people in the past as just the biggest, dumbest idiots, right? That we, that we have this idea that we are so much more enlightened than the collective grouping of the past. And while I think that there are certainly things that we have become better about, there are also so many things that we have definitely become worse about. You know, it's very hard to me 
at this particular point in time to I mean, now, of course, there are, you know, bad people and backwards views everywhere, but it's very hard for me to sit back at, at a time where we're all quarantined to our homes because of a pandemic and in part because the followers of a crypto fascist refuse to do the basic work of wearing masks because they think the disease is a conspiracy created by high powered pedophiles uh, who are all communicating to us through Netflix releases. And, and 5G networks. Yeah. And, and okay. So all of that is happening. And it's hard for me to look at and to sit from my vantage point and go, oh, yeah. Well, in the past, I've got some pictures of some people doing some bad stuff. So that means everybody back then was stupid. Like, if anything, it's distinctly possible that we've all gotten dumber in the last 20 years. Our worldviews have become more narrow. We're less willing to interrogate them. Now, I'm not suggesting that you know we should go back to the old days or anything like that but i do kind of feel like it doesn't really benefit us to have this assumption and i'm not saying that that's what anyone's doing here but i feel like that's when it comes to conversations about art in general to have this sort of idea that like only we now in our modern world are smart and enlightened enough to understand things fully and I, I, so I don't necessarily love that framing uh, that they're doing here because I think about how you frame a work, how you present a piece of art to people affects how they view it, undeniably, right? I mean, when we started doing the show, my big thing that we talked about, you know, me, Kyle, and Tom, we had a couple of meetings and conversations about this beforehand. And when I said, like, the goal of the show is to talk about not if, but why these films matter. And that's not to try and limit anything, but rather because if you go into a work of art saying, I'm going to figure out why this matters, instead of just saying, I'm going to see if this matters, you're already going to find more if you're taking the effort to look. So, so to that degree, when you start to frame this in the context of very much like, well, did it actually mean this? You know, did it, was it maybe secretly evil? And it's like, well, you can look at John Ford's biography and find that that's not the case. Most of his other films make it very clear. You can say, we can debate whether or not people walked away feeling a certain thing, but to imply like, is the film intended to endorse the attitudes? Just look at any other film the guy made. Whether or not he was successful in conveying that point in this film, I, I think looking at his other movies, there's no way to say, oh yeah, no, in this one, he definitely thinks that uh, John Wayne's the good guy. Look, when someone is doing a version of this podcast or a, a movie podcast, if podcasts still exist, when they're doing a version of this podcast in 40 years, right? Uh, do you want our grandkids to all assume that we were stupid because since Green Book won Best Picture, that meant everyone loved it and <laughs> all of us thought it was great? No, but like, I, you know, I mean it. Like, there is something to that. That's probably your point. I think that, I mean, I, I think you're you're right in the, the, that sense. But I also think that going back to looking at John Ford's other body of work, um, and especially his early stuff, granted, I'm speaking on things that I haven't seen, but I know his history. Um, and like his, the movies that pre predate this one and predate his time in the war. I mean, if, if, if you're a diehard John Ford fan and you go and see this, it might be a little confusing and like yeah yeah maybe it's maybe it's easy to like 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 well that's the point yeah that's totally the point it's supposed to be confusing for the people that um like that kind of thing but 
I think it's also, I don't know, like if, uh, like if Michael Moore just all of a sudden started making some right wing shit, I mm-hmm. think that we would all be just kind of like, wait, what? Well, let me, let me ask this then on that note. And this is a real thing uh, that I, I want to address because it's a film we talked about. We talked about Star Wars recently on the show. Patrick Kotner, um, producer of the George Lucas Talk Show, was kind enough to come on to talk about Star Wars. And for that episode, I kind of wanted to keep us in the realm of let's talk about 1977 Star Wars. Let's not talk about the world around him. But I, I think about this, I, I, you know, when you talk about John Wayne, you're right. You, you were right. He was an icon. The idea of the Western star is such an interest. I've, you know, I'll give you an idea. Like the number one Western star in America for a while was Roy Rogers. Oh, yeah. Roy Rogers was like the Chris Hemsworth of, of Western stars. Uh, he just, you know, it was just you could put his name on something and people were like, oh, all right. And now if you ask somebody who Roy Rogers is, they'll say that's the burger place and, you know, a couple blocks away <laughs> uh, and they don't know who Roy Rogers is. John Wayne is is one of those. Um, or, or and Randolph so, Scott. Or, uh, well, Will Rogers. Well, yeah. Will Rogers, the who I tried. I have tried so hard to understand um, the appeal of Will Rogers, but it seems like he just came out with a lasso and went, Congress is stupid. You vote for one person. Or you vote for the other. That's my thoughts. And it's like, all right. But anyway, <laughs> to get back to the point, you're right, Sierra. You're right. John Wayne was an icon and John Wayne was considered like the hero and the badass. And John Ford making the film to interrogate that, you maybe you had people who would turn around and go, well, if John Wayne's doing it, he must be the hero. Or you have a backlash that's kind of like, well, the Duke wouldn't do that unless he was right. And I, the thing that I think of when you say that is I think about what we dealt with recently in response to The Last Jedi and the pushback on The Last Jedi because of the people who just kept going, well, Luke wouldn't do that. Luke wouldn't run away. Luke wouldn't do this. Well, that's bullshit. Luke wouldn't do that. And they became so attached to this image in their mind and a film that was intended to kind of challenge the audience, a film that was intended to make you wrestle with the idea of, oh, Luke Skywalker for a moment considered that he might kill his own relative. You're meant to struggle with the idea of this person might kill their niece or nephew, right? This person that we, in our minds, like we grew up with, they were our hero. And now we're watching them do something that we can't get behind. How do we deal with these emotions? And you had people with, you know, Last Jedi recently who just shut down. They just shut down and refused to engage with that idea. Now, I, I don't think that any of us are going to uh, blame Ryan Johnson for that, per se. But it is something where you're right. Using that iconography and distorting that iconography does challenge people and challenge audiences in a way that they aren't always ready to be challenged. Yeah, it just especially in the time period, like that was it. Like this was like right on the precipice of the civil rights movement. So, I mean, the United States wasn't even geared into beginning to think like, you know, more open mindedly about race relations and and all of that. And like, maybe this maybe this was a like a good time to just kind of like ease in certain ideas. But like, I think there was there's probably a lot of you know people could get that get that point lost like because just you know based on who who it was coming from 
we're talking about, you know, John Wayne and the, you know, the context and all of that. And I think if anyone in 1956 had been following John Ford or John Wayne, because you can't really disconnect those two. If you're going to see The Searchers, you're pro- you, you were probably seeing all the other Westerns that John Ford made. And I just don't see how someone can go to Ford Apache or um, Wagon Master or, you know, this or, or any of those things before this and get surprised by it this feeling of, oh, maybe there's something deeper going on here or anything like that. But at the same time, like a lot of like people didn't watch movies then the way that they do now. Like my mother always tells me the story that when her father took her to see Monty Python and the Holy Grail and her father left the movie with them uh, because he genuinely didn't know who Monty Python was and thought that this was a religious movie. So like there's not word of mouth. People didn't go and see everything in the discography or the filmography of uh so and so. They just saw a movie that like oh I know who that is. That seems like a new film. Um well, so they probably hadn't seen maybe they did, maybe they didn't see previous works from Well that gets into you know, an interesting thing. I mean, obviously with this show, it's all about placing the movie within context, the context of the times and the context of uh, how it's influenced things to get us to this point. But I, to get to the point you made of people don't watch movies the way we did, they didn't, they weren't able to track a director or an actor or whatever the way we are able today. Taking the searchers out of all that and just plopping it down on the table and just looking at it on its own. It's still going to be a movie because it doesn't hold your hand, because it's very subtle, and also because it does make, in one sequence, a pretty big mistake. Yeah. It's going to be a movie that you have to talk about because you could go watch it, sans all this context, and and by the time you get to that sequence, the wife sequence, Mm -hmm. you might just get so angry about at the movie that by the time it ends, you just aren't able to contextualize everything that happened before and that happened to end the movie. But you could have someone that doesn't get triggered in that way and watches the movie and takes that ride, sees that ending and goes, okay, hmm, okay. And then you could have a conversation, which is not something that a lot of people want to have to do these days. You could have the conversation about the searchers. And you could still come away from it having maybe a different opinion than each other, but maybe seeing like, okay, I see where you're coming from. Right. And maybe don't necessarily agree, but I think there's enough in there, sans the context of Ford, sans the context of Wayne, sans the context of 1956 American socio-political relations. There's just a lot in that movie to just chew on to get into some of the greater subtleties of the movie that many people may not realize, um, as Mike told me, he has a very particular favorite pet theory about a relationship in the searchers that the movie doesn't outright tell you about. Do you want me to? Yeah, I can. Yeah. I'll touch on that. Let me just real quick to address what we were talking about, about the fifties and context. I do want to talk about Sierra made a point. This is, you know, on the precipice of the civil rights movement. However, that doesn't mean that, that uh, you know, I think some people kind of 
think, and again, I'm not suggesting use here. I'm saying some people kind of think that the civil rights movement happened and it just kind of like a big bang moment exploded at once and everybody went, oh, I guess we got to talk oh, about this no. now. Well, of course not. Of course not. But like, that's when like started to become to like a, a forefront. But to my, what I'm getting at here is, is that you do see an evolution in terms of not just John Ford, but the Western in general post-war. I mean, let's talk about the fact that, think about this. So in 1952, you get High Noon. And what High Noon is dealing with and the ideas of cowardice and, and using it as a, a metaphor for the blacklist. And then you skip ahead, you know, you, so you've got High Noon is going in that direction with the Western. And in, I believe, 54, maybe I'm getting the year wrong, uh, 53, you get Shane, mm-hmm. uh, which is, of course, you know, there's no living with a killing and really interrogating the idea of the Western hero. And then, you know, the searches. So there is. And not to mention the other films in other genres that are coming out around this time. There is something in the 50s and in 50s cinema that is to uh, paraphrase Buffalo Springfield. There's something happening here. uh, And what it is ain't exactly clear. But there is throughout all of these films. And not just that, even this year in particular, even in 56, William Wyler uh, is making uh, Friendly Persuasion, a film that is about Quakers in the middle of the Civil War forced to decide whether they should take up arms or not oh, right it's a so there's a lot going on there's a lot and giant comes out this year there's a lot of movies that are kind of dealing with this i i think that on that note you know what to what tom was saying about you know removing it from the context and looking at it i think the fact that it comes out in the 50s um harms it more in retrospect than it does now because oh, yeah. i think that we are very quick and, uh, you know, all of us, I, we, we are so we, we always try and put, you know, the past in a certain box and that it is only a certain way. The way that, um, you know, someone we're going to be talking about for us later this week, for our audience a couple weeks from now, uh, also a major figure in cinema, uh, Walt Disney very much liked to take history and just kind of put it through one particular view, you know, whether it's his frontier land or his main street or you know davy crockett or whatever he has his his one way of like well this is okay i saw in the books that the past was like this this is what everyone was like then and i think that it's easy for us to think of the 50s sort of in that idyllic happy days eisenhower whitewashed version and not the fact that at the same time that this is you know that that the search is coming out we're starting to deal with that uh, you are starting to have the beat generation coming out. You know, it's it's a lot harder to have an image in your mind of everyone going in. And I'm talking more about, again, the, the registry statement uh, of who knows what they thought. It's a lot harder to have this image in your mind of everybody going into the searches with their crew cuts and their, you know, 2.5 kids and walking out and going, I agree, John Wayne is a hero. It's a lot harder to do that when you remember that these people are also reading excerpts of Kerouac in their Playboy magazine that they're getting. And the, and that our ability to interrogate art and the subtlety of art. I mean, the year prior to The Searchers, you get Rebel Without a Cause, you get Night of the Hunter, you get All That Heaven Allows, you know, uh, you've got a lot of films that are that are challenging. Uh, shit, the, the year before, in, in 1955, you get Bad Day at Black Rock. Which yeah. uh, has a, we'll be talking about it soon, but uh, 
asks America to really confront its much more recent racism. There's a lot of, you know, just bad faith assumptions about the 50s. And yeah, you know, you can't expect everyone that went to see this movie to have just come out and said, yeah, let's go wrangle us up some natives and start some shit because John Wayne doesn't like them. I mean, think about just based on the special feature on the, the, the disc you watched, just the the range of filmmakers, not even like today, just like the people who grew up, who saw that movie in the theaters, smart people that even as they got older, were able to like wrangle with the movie and just be able to see the complexities that were influenced and were like, yes, I want to, you know, those, you know, Scorsese, Melius and Spielberg in their different ways. I want to make art that is complex, ambiguous, epic, human, messy, this, that, you know, and you, you can't just ignore that. There were a lot of people clearly that saw this movie and weren't poisoned with brain worms by it and i would say that on that note and here's the thing i want us all to think about is something more recently and i hate that i bring this up so much on the show but when we talk about faith in audiences and and our lack of faith in audiences and not just <laughs> lack of media so but our lack of faith in media literacy i sierra i know you only saw the tr- you didn't read it tom and i read the joker script before the movie came out Oh, I didn't actually see the movie either. <laughs> oh, that's that's fine. I'm not saying, you know, no, I'm not saying anyone has to. But I do think that there was this sense immediately, because we wanted to hate it or because, you know, whatever it was, there was this real sense. We all remember this. I mean, you know, the movie theaters were adding extra security because they were convinced that people would see this movie and commit acts of violence and riot and go nuts and that no one would be able to process this dangerous work of... We talked about it like it was a dangerous work of art. And what I thought was so strange about that particular moment is that it was the kind of people who had seemed their whole lives to be kind of anti-censorship and let people decide for themselves and, and don't tell me what I can't watch were suddenly the ones going, I don't know, this movie about this Batman villain, it might cause people to start burning buildings down. But But of course that didn't happen and and we've done this a couple of times there's certainly been instances um and a lot of times throughout uh cinema history be it do the right thing or the spook who sat by the door how many times there had been articles and concerns of i don't know if black people see these movies they might riot and it's it's so wildly condescending um you know that was a real concern that if people saw if do the right thing Play and you can find articles. Spike Lee talks about it all the time. That people thought, oh well, if they see that ending and do the right thing, they might tear the seats out of the theater and throw shit around. Uh, straight out of Compton. Do you remember the articles? Not that long ago. Oh yeah. That, and it was wildly racist and offensive, and and it was basically this assumption of, well, I don't know. People might be too dumb for this, and I think that we have to be a bit careful there because I think yes, there are a few people. There are some people who will always interpret art to go the way they already believe and will take something their own way. And I think that when it comes to art, particularly art that's trying to send a message and particularly art that's trying to go against hatred uh, or, or, or bigotry or anything like that. Yeah. I, it, let's talk about this. And this is a director I don't like and a movie I don't like, <laughs> but I'll still <laughs> rep for it here, which is it's distinctly possible that some people who are Nazis watched Jojo Rabbit, had a grand old time, and it didn't change their views at all. You know, it, it's distinctly possible that some people walked away from Jojo Rabbit with 
the wrong read. Now uh, you and I, you know, finish the movie in that one, but I don't know I'm because sure. well, hang on, I I want to disagree with that point there because it's distinctly possible people can finish a movie and not get it because you know what I would compare the ending of the Searchers to what? Because we're talking about it being too subtle. Yeah. I think if you watch a movie that is all about a guy, uh, you know, trying to become a part of this family and reclaim his family and then being shut out and forced to walk away alone because he cannot be a part of civilized society, he's become a monster. I think about Scarface, Brian De Palma's Scarface, and the fact that how many people do you know who think that Tony Montana is an aspirational character, despite the fact that the movie very clearly ends with him being riddled with bullets, falling into a pool, dying alone. I mean, Tony He's not getting his ruined. sister killed. Yes, <laughs> the one person killed. in the world he loved, he gets her killed after in a drunken f- fueled mania, kills his best friend because of his possession. It's yeah, no, that's that's one of the greatest examples of like just missing so, some point of a movie. So we can look at that and say how could you possibly misread that ending? And yet, how many people do? Oh, yeah. You know, despite the fact that it seems very on the nose. And I think that, you know, Jojo Rabbit is certainly on the nose to me. But I think when you do any of these things, you are you are never going to... Brian De Palma is never going to convince the guy who was always going to be uh, a criminal. He's never going to convince that guy with Scarface, hey, don't follow this life. The same way... Let's talk about a much more subtle film in that way. Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, which so many uh, Italian guys look to and go, yeah, yeah, that's a cool guy. That's a tough guy. That's a much more subtle film. We certainly don't. But at the same time, like, could you imagine if in 50, 60 years, when somebody's writing about Goodfellas, they go, well, back in the 90s, they probably watched (laughs) this film and everyone thought the mafia's cool. Everyone thought I should sell cocaine. But now, in our more enlightened time, we know that you shouldn't be in the mob. Like, you know, I I think that there are certainly people who are going to watch Goodfellas or are going to watch Scarface and are going to still go down that road. But what you hope when you make something like this, and I think the searches as well, the the most hard, nobody who is a, a, you know, nobody who is a card-carrying member of the KKK is going to watch the searches and go, I should get my life straight. But you know, the hope when you make something like this is that the people who have some degree of bigotry that they don't want to address or that they don't want to recognize they have will look at this and go, oh, I can't believe he's going to shoot her. That's disgusting. I've been cheering this guy on up until now. And oh, this is a bridge too far and have to interrogate that the same way that I think more recently a film, you know, uh, we were talking about a film like Get Out it was not made for the hardcore racist to reform, but it was made for people, let's face it, like us who think we are good, good, uh, good white New York liberals to watch it and look at the Bradley Whitford character and look at these characters and kind of go, Hmm. Okay. I think maybe I'm, I think I have some issues that I haven't addressed yet, but I, I do want to touch real quick. Uh, I'm, and I'm sorry to go off on a, a diatribe, but like Tom was raising, there is a theory. Um, let me ask you, Sierra, you might, because I, I want to know if you maybe had the same read on this film and, and this theory that I subscribe to. Do you remember the scene where John Wayne is saying goodbye to his sister-in-law? Yes, before they go on the first raid? Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, did, 
Yes. Did anything stick out to you about that? And it's okay if not. It's just this I mean, is my theory. Of like I'm having a hard time remembering that scene in particular. But so that scene is to me very deliberate because Ward Bond is there. Ward Bond is the the Reverend. Yes. Uh, Ward Bond is there, and he's having I think some coffee. Or he's having some food, and he's talking to everybody in the kitchen. He's acting totally normal, and as soon as Ethan comes in to say goodbye to his sister in law. Ward Bond stares deliberately straight forward and John Wayne gives her a very affectionate kiss on the forehead and he talks to her and they leave and it's not until Wayne is out of the room that Ward Bond drops again but he's very deliberately not looking and very deliberately staring straight ahead so that implies something there's there you know it it would be easy to write that off I think you know and, and kind of go well that's just because John Wayne directed that scene weird but there's something I was at I have always been of the belief that Ethan is Debbie's father. A word. I okay. believe. That's an interesting because take. If you think at the beginning, when, when we first meet Ethan, which, you know, uh, Ethan arrives on a horse, they're playing in the score, they're playing Bonnie Blue Flag, which is the, uh, you know, the old Confederate uh, battle cry. And he shows up and they point out he's been gone eight years. Right. How old is Debbie when he gets there? She's like that age around She's that? eight. They point out that she's eight. Yeah, they point out that because he picks her up thinking that she's the other sister. Yes. And they're like, no, 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 that's Debbie. Yeah. And so I have always been of the belief, and I'm, I, I'm far from the only one, but I've always been of the belief that that is an element to this. And especially the fact that, you know, that the reverend stares straight ahead when Ethan's saying goodbye to the sister-in-law and the, the tenderness that they share. I have always felt like that is an added layer to this. That it is, Ethan is just a a failure as a father because he is a dishonorable man, and they the film establishes this from the beginning. He oh, is yeah. a former Confederate. He is a wanted man, uh, which is something that Tom likes to to talk about too. Yeah, he's he is probably a war criminal. At at worst, he's a, at best he's just a, a a thug who's now resorting to stealing unmarked gold, or he's a war criminal. And because uh, what the medal he gives to Debbie, in the script, it's supposed to be a gold medal or medallion awarded by Emperor Maximilian of Mexico to mercenaries who fought in the, against the French. He's straight up just become a man of violence with no honor who's either stealing out of the war or became a war criminal. Either way, he's just, from the jump, a bad guy. <laughs> Yeah, that's always been my read on that, and I think that adds a layer to the Ethan story because he is—he has this whole idea that he is superior to the Comanche, right? That he—he he is a white man is superior, and yet he is one of the worst examples of a human being uh, in this film. Not just because he's a war criminal, not just because he's a Confederate. He—he he slept with his brother's wife, fathered a child which he abandoned. And the only thing he does with any sort of paternal instinct is, well, I'll kill her because she's not pure. Yeah. I mean, even just the way Ward Bond, Ward, what? God damn it. Ward Bond. Ward, Ward Bond. Yeah. Brain fart. The way Ward Bond just, like, is with him when he shows up and he's very, like, quick to be like, am I going to find out you're a wanted man? Just, like, very easily, like, yeah, no, he, he wouldn't be surprised if, if John Wayne is, like, if, if Ethan is straight up just now. A, a criminal. Also, speaking of subtle, 
Did you guys notice what was on the um the tombstone when Debbie goes to hide during the raid? No, I didn't. What's on the tombstone? Ethan's mother was killed by Native Americans. Uh, oh wow. I never picked up on that. Oh. Yeah, there is uh again not an uh, an empathy but not a sympathy understanding that Ethan probably amongst many other reasons hates Native Americans because they killed his mother and in the few little examples we get of his humanity later on, he knows that this particular Native American thereafter killed, what's his name? Uh, who's with him? Oh, God. The, yeah, the, oh, the adopted. Uh, um, the adopted the adopted kid's mother. Don't Jeffrey look Hunter. at that. Yeah, Jeffrey Hunter. Yeah. Did you see what was on that stick? That was your mother's braid. He just, he like, he's trying the whole movie to not give Jeffrey Hunter the same freaking pathology that he has uh, there's something about i want to talk about just briefly i want to touch on the fact that i i'm not the biggest john wayne fan <laughs> neither am I. um neither. but there are but there are two scenes in this movie where i'm like oh he's so fucking good and um one is when he's describing having to bury lucy in the jacket yeah and he is playing um every relative that any of us have who can't process his emotions yeah. Like, you know, when he's fighting back tears and he's like, don't make me say it again. Don't make me talk. You know, it's like, great. And the other one I love, and this is um, the scene that has stuck with me ever since I first saw this when I was a kid. Because I I've, I first discovered this film because uh, I had gone to, when I was really young, uh, my Hollywood video had the DVD of the AFI's 100 Movies Countdown uh, back before they redid it. And I believe it was Mel Brooks was the one talking about it. But it was somebody on talking about The Searchers and the scene that they highlighted was when they find the Comanche buried in the ground and Ethan shoots out his eyes. And the Reverend says, what'd you do that for? He was already dead. And Ethan goes, well, for what you preach, nothing. But for him, his people believe that he's uh, cursed to wander the earth. He can never find paradise if he doesn't have eyes. And Brooks points out like how horrifying and upsetting that is because it's, oh, wow, he, he hates these people so much that even if he doesn't believe their beliefs, he will still torture them just according to their own beliefs. Yeah. I think about things like, you know, and that makes me think of people we deal with today who kind of punch down, like whether it's, uh, if you remember like shortly after nine 11, the guys who were holding the burn the Quran parties or, uh, the people who, who have the draw Muhammad contests who were just like, well, this doesn't affect me in any way, but I know it makes you upset. So I'm going to do it anyway. You don't have to, there's no reason to, but you're going to do it anyway, because you're, disdain for someone is that strong that scene to me especially is just like john wayne in this movie is mostly playing hate the scene when he they find the women who were rescued from the tribe and he says well they're not even white anymore they're comanche and they zoom in on his shadow covered eyes and his hateful glare like he's playing hate so strong yeah in this film. i mean that i'm not the biggest wayne guy either but i i of what i've seen this is definitely his best performance and the the scene this time, it really got to me. I'm not the biggest crier in the world when it comes to movies, as Mike can attest, but I got choked up at the moment at the end when he, he finally gets Debbie, and she's just so afraid. And he's like, Debbie, Debbie, let's go home. And I was just like, oh, god damn it. You got me. You got me this time. Just because it's those... those mo Yeah, it's like Mike said. He's playing hate so much through the movie, but it's just those little glimpses of the humanity, the cracked humanity underneath that makes this so great, which 
adds to that subtlety, that anti-hero thing that we love so much and that I particularly love so much that probably the best you could pull any of these scenes you could pull out and say, this is the best scene John Wayne did. This is the best scene John Wayne did, whatever. Like if you put in an acting reel of John Wayne, you probably like the close up from stagecoach and then just like everything from this. Yeah, I think. And there's something interesting about his parallels with Scar, who is the, the villain of yes. this film. Um, you know, John Milius in the special features talked about his admiration for Scar growing up. He's like, I didn't want to be Ethan. I wanted to be Scar. And I think there's something interesting about the fact that when you look at how Native Americans are portrayed in films prior to this, to to be generous, not dignified, you know, it is distorted and uh, made ugly and made monstrous. And not only is Scar made to look powerful, he's made to look virile. He is an attractive man. He is in command of his tribe. There is nothing evil about Scar that is not also evil about Ethan. Which I think is very interesting. And I, I, you know, the scene I, I love and the exchange they have is early on when Ethan says, you speak good English for a Comanche, someone teach you. And then later, uh, Scar says to him, you speak good Comanche uh, for a, what does he say, a Texan, right? Yeah. A Texan, someone teach you. And I think that there's something to that where you could just take it as a joke and you could just say like, oh, he's getting him back. But I also think there's something about the fact that he's pointing out that the Comanche language is their language. The yeah. Comanche tongue is the Comanche tongue. And that he, as a Texan, is speaking English. He doesn't even have his own language. But I think there's something just about the fact that in no place is Scar portrayed as an animal or as subhuman. He is... The, the movie kind of treats him, I think, almost almost like the, the Lex Luthor to Ethan Superman, or vice versa. Where oh, yeah. you know that these two are going to, to paraphrase a different film, they're going to dance that dance forever. Until one of them is in the ground. There's no redemption there. It just goes back to the old adage that revenge is bad. I mean, <laughs> yes. there's also, I think it's also very interesting, another element of subversion and the way it's reflecting these two characters against each other is that Ethan doesn't kill Scar. Jeffrey Hunter kills Scar. Mm -hmm. Because it's basically Jeffrey Hunter killing Ethan. It's him killing it's him stopping himself becoming Ethan. This is like the end for him. He is not going to become Ethan. He's going to take his sister home. He's going to marry the girl. And he's not going to be left out in, just out of frame in the doorway. He, this is... E Jeffrey Hunter's battle is not against Scar. It's against Ethan. And I think that's very interesting too yeah let's talk about jeffrey hunter for a bit because i think he represents two things that i think are interesting uh in regard to this film and in regard to where cinema goes in general is that i think that and now sierra you talked about watching a lot of westerns um yeah. growing up and i would venture to guess that most of the westerns you watched um I, you know and I, I don't want to but at least the ones i grew up on you know you had a hero and he was your protagonist and if there were other characters they were kind of one-dimensional secondary characters, at least until the Leone Peckinpah era. The secondary minor characters. I, well, let me let me correct you yeah, real quick there. Uh, you said he, um, and that probably alludes to what my favorite western is. It's not a he. Okay. It's a she. 
Johnny Guitar is my favorite Western movie. Yes, okay, yes. Which is around the same time. Which is around the 50s. Uh, Johnny Guitar, yeah, I believe is 54. Let me look. Yes, 54. And again, you want to talk about Westerns that are kind of uh, being subversive. And Johnny Guitar was especially a movie that no one understood at the time. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, Well, also, you know, John Joan Crawford. Mm. Yeah, well. With that that energy. <laughs> that was a film no one understood at the time and has now gotten a you know a cult following, but that was one people weren't maybe not ready for. Um but I think that you know you talk about that though and let's talk about the you know the prior to the fifties westerns. Yeah. Setting the ones that are subversing aside. The prior to the fifties westerns, you have your one character and you're following them. And if you have a secondary character, they are fairly one dimensional. They don't necessarily have an arc. They're mostly there to be cannon fodder. Unless I'm mistaken, but those are at least what I grew yeah. up with. Yeah. I think there's something interesting about the fact that this becomes Jeffrey Hunter's story and this becomes Jeffrey Hunter's arc during this film because the story is, yes, we have Ethan, he is a bigot, and his hatred is the driving engine of this movie, but along the way is Jeffrey Hunter, who in the book is just a relative. But Ford goes out of his way to make, to change the story and make Jeffrey Hunter part Native American. Yes. and. The idea of being of mixed heritage and the complexities. I mean, I think that's something we've, we still don't necessarily deal with well in pop culture is the idea of, you know, we're very good at kind of creating a lane and going, well, if you're this race, you're this, this is your stuff. And if you're this race, this is for you. And if you're this, this is for you. But the way that that sort of leaves out people of in a country that prides itself on being a melting pot if you are part of more than one camp if you will uh if you're of more than one race i I, it's there are so many stories to be told about that conflict you know and and struggling with that and of course this film is about jeffrey hunter's character struggling with his mixed heritage and especially the way that Ford antagonizes him and makes him feel other for well, the whole film. And, and and the mistake, as you said it earlier, with this film can kind of be not excused, but explained by his internal struggle. Of course, I'm talking about the scene where he accidentally marries uh, that woman, uh, the look woman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he's just horribly abusive towards her. And like, you know, like literally physically assaults this poor woman that's just trying to help. Drop kicks her off a fucking cliff. <laughs> yeah. Which which reads as and going back to a point I made earlier about like this movie not being like it being a little too subtle, like that reads and probably to a 1956 audience, that reads as a big old joke. I, I, who knows? Who knows if the audience of that time was as appalled by it as the three of us were. I I know, and I know that you expressed to me, even when we were getting ready for this, that, that you had some some real difficulty with that scene, and I don't want to minimize that in any way. Um, but, no, I, I agree, and the 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 scene in question, so Martin, uh, Martin is the, the Jeffrey Hunter character, as Martin, uh, you're right, accidentally marries a woman. Yeah. Um, so there's the, there's the surface level of, of that story arc, which is Martin thinks he's buying a blanket, but he's actually buying a bride. Yes. And he doesn't know how to communicate with her. And all she wants to do is help and be there for him. 
Uh, he keeps saying look before he speaks to her. So she thinks that he wants to call her look and she decides that's just her name now. Um, and, uh, this culminates in a moment where, uh, she lays down next to him because Martin keeps trying to get rid of her. She lays down next to him and he kicks her down a hill. And all the while, uh, Ethan is cackling when this happens. Shortly thereafter, uh, Ethan and, and uh, Martin go on their way, and when they return to their camp, she has been uh, killed by the cavalry. A quick correction on yes. this one beat, beat there is that um, he kicks her down, and mm-hmm. they make mention, I think, I think Martin makes mention of Scar. Ethan goes, I think she knows what you just said, and they get the idea that, that she knows where Scar is. They get that information, and they split off. And then they go to Scar's camp. Scar's gone, but they find, look, the cavalry has killed her. And Martin feels like absolute shit at this point. And you even get the sense that Ethan's kind of like, oh, this does kind of suck. I think there's something interesting to, and, uh, you know, there's something to dig deeper in, but what I suppose is weird, uh, and, and it's all of us, we all sort of have this reaction where we see Martin kick her and we're uh, taken aback by that. However, when we find out that she has been killed by the cavalry, this innocent character who we were just concerned for a minute ago, and she's been killed by not natives or savages, but the cavalry, um, we don't recoil as much. And I, I wonder what that says about us and what we have come to expect. Uh, when it comes to, quite frankly, if I may, you know, and I don't mean to speak to it, like the treatment of Native Americans in in cinema is that we almost expect them to be cannon fodder, but we're still repulsed at an act of physical violence. I think there's also, like, the difference between, and and, and I, I don't, I think this is just kind of like a, like a still a current human thing. But I think the act of, like, seeing somebody die versus seeing somebody abused, there's, like, a little bit more humanity to the abuse than there is, like, a death. Because, like, you mm. see, I think it's one of the reasons why Law & Order SVU was so powerful is because, like, oh, your victims are alive and you can you can see how they're feeling. But when they're dead, they're dead. So you just, like, you associate with, oh, they're just dead. So I think... Maybe that's the reason why we kind of felt the way that we did. And I guess maybe that's kind of like how I felt about it. Um, I mean, in that I, point, I, I, I just think it's um, mainly just the mistake of how broadly comedic the sequence is leading up to it from the, oh, you actually, you're, you weren't buying a blanket, you were getting a wife all the way up to that moment, it's played so broadly comedic that it feels crueler than it's trying to be. Right. And, you know, I get the point. I, you know, we, we, it's, it's a point about Jeff, you know, Martin dealing with his biracial identity. It's uh, a bit of a plot uh, progressor. Um, there's reasons for it. It just feels like John Ford has this rowdy sensibility in his movies, this uh, Irish rowdy sensibility of like, oh, people like they're not people back then weren't stiff. They were like, you know, there were jokes and people were doing these things and ha and look at all these cultural differences. And he's he brings that to this scene. And it's it's 
I would say maybe the one sequence where he's not on point. And I think it's just that whipshaw between broad comedy to, oh, he just drop kicked her down a hill. And now we're in a plot moment. Um, I do think, though, it does work well enough for that moment where they find her body. I think that is the impact he wants of, oh, we were treating her like she wasn't human, but she's dead in a pile of bodies now because of what we did to her. Because we didn't see her as human. Because Jeffrey Hunter was trying so hard to be more like an Ethan, a white man than he was uh, showing any respect to his actual heritage, which is also something that, uh, you know, bringing it into context, John Ford has actually done in this, did in this movie Wagon Master I watched today, where he's very clearly making the points that, well, actually, the natives aren't the distrustworthy, savage animals. It's the, the white men you have to actually be afraid of, because they're just going to kill you and say it was a righteous cause. Well, and think about think about the fact that and I, you know, I, I want to talk to you, Sierra, more about this particular note. In particular, uh, I, I want to just say also that uh, you guys are not alone in this stance. In 2013, Scorsese wrote about his frequent rewatching of The Searchers and said uh, of the scene of kicking the wife, uh, he says this passage seemed unnecessarily cruel to me Yeah, and said that on his most recent viewing, it troubled me on an even deeper level. But he went on to state, that films like this are important to make because of their unfathomable and uncomfortable messages. Now, one thing about the death of, of look in the film is I think that that also parallels the death of Martha because in the searchers, we are, you know, uh, we are told that the Comanche ran through, we don't see it, but we see that we are told the Comanche ran through and uh, the body of Martha is in this ditch. Right? right that they just ran through and for no reason they just picked these people at random and attacked and it is easy to just look at that and go and and take that scene in isolation and say well you're saying that they're savage you're saying that they're animals but then remember the fact that the cavalry the u.s cavalry also just ransacked and killed this woman killed martin's wife you know, killed another Martha. That this is, this is two forces. This is, like John Milius says, the movie is not about race, but tribe. That it's tribalism. That, that there is almost, there is nothing that the Comanche do in this film that is not also done by the U.S. and done by the cavalry or done by Ethan or done by but I do want to make sure we give time, Sierra, because you were talking about, when you mentioned this scene, you were talking about the potential deeper read and how it reflects on Martin. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk more about that since you set that up. Well, I think, like, that's just, like, kind of basically the same thing, like, it, like you were saying. It, it's kind of his own reflection upon himself, how he sees himself, and then he, Ethan's clearly having a good time with him being all frustrated about um his new marriage to look um and then i think his maybe his bully brain took over and like kicked her down that hill because like he knew that he could like do something like that and it not be seen as violent by the other person that was there that she that 
that she sort of represents the part of himself that he doesn't want yeah. to. Yeah, and that he was going to, in a way, kick himself down that hill as well for the entertainment of Ethan. And maybe I read that wrong, but, you know, that's, that's I think, maybe partially how, like, maybe where he was coming from. Like, uh, this is this is a part of me that this guy hates. Because you know, um, Jeffrey Hunter barely speaks of his heritage himself, so we as an audience have no idea how he actually feels about it. It's just in response to what John Wayne is saying about him or to him. So we kind of have no idea if like, he actually is proud of his heritage or if he does have some sort of like connection. I mean, he clearly seemed in his element when he was incorrectly speaking with the the tribe that he found when he was trying when he was trying to buy blankets he seemed like the happiest we see him the whole movie so like honestly does he hate that part of himself or is he only reacting to the john wayne's hatred of part of him i think also there's something to the fact that the movie itself is is very much about this idea that we have that's come up a lot now in in um conversations but this idea of race as a construct and i think that particularly for a biracial character like martin that's a lot easier to understand and to 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 instinctually know like oh it's really just i when i'm with these people i'm this way when i'm with these people i'm that way you know sort of a, a code switching element and i think that ethan even sort of whether he knows it or not expresses as much because when he has that line of, well, they're not white anymore, they're Comanche, he's essentially, even of his own kin, his own flesh and blood, he's saying that she can be made Comanche. So it's not that, that, that he, the film itself is, is openly acknowledging race as a construct and, and the journey that takes. Because think about the journey that Martin takes. He wants so desperately to be accepted by Ethan, right? To the point where, to go through your saying, Siri, he kicks away the part of himself. That he rejects. He wants so badly to be accepted as Ethan's kin, to be accepted as white, to be accepted as part of that. And then when you get to the end, after Ethan has seen Debbie and has determined that she is no longer Comanche, or she's no longer white, she's Comanche, uh, when he's writing his will, he's leaving everything, having no blood kin, he's leaving everything to Martin. He is fully, in that moment, accepting Martin as family and saying, you are all I've got now. You're my closest thing to family. Having no blood kin, not no kin, having no blood kin, I leave it all to you. Martin finally has the acceptance he wants and he rejects it because he knows he will not become that person. And the idea of, are you out of your, when he turns around and says, you know, what about Debbie? He starts to see just how repugnant this all is. And like Tom points out, his recognition of, I'm not going to be that person. He gets to be part of the house. He gets to go inside. Yeah. Nathan doesn't that he is alienated from his family he's alienated from if you go by my read his own daughter that he has nothing that he is just forced to in a way which i think echoes my favorite scene or you know my most haunting scene that much like the man whose eyes he shot out ethan is now just forced to wander that's all he can do he walks away and he's forced to wander just as he did for the eight years uh, that Debbie was growing up. I think that there's, yeah, there's, Martin takes that journey in this and his struggle with identity by the end, he makes peace with that. 
whether or not he's proud of any one thing one way or the other, I think he is just content to be Martin and to be a part of the family that he has. Something else that I think is uh, kind of running through this movie, and it feels very much of a piece of like what Ford uh, likes to do, is that um, a big part of this movie is that um, home, you know, is it? You know, home is where you make it. There is, you know, every by the end of this movie, these people are going to, you know, Martin and Debbie are going to make their home, not where they grew up, but in the house of uh norwegian nordic or swedish immigrants and i mean martin even had to make do with making a new home for himself after his family was killed growing up with ethan's family and that it's this idea that america at its best as the norwegian woman says at a certain point in the movie i think about in the middle where she's like well i think you know the the dream about america is that it'll be better in the future but maybe we'll have to be uh buried in the ground before our our kids can actually make that make america a better place it it's all tied up in this tribalism thing of like well if you're so stuck in this one way of thinking the world is going to move beyond you and you're not going to have a home and unless you're comfortable with things are going to change you're going to have to make do with you know you got a daughter you know a bastard daughter who was, you know, quote unquote, sullied by the Comanche? Uh, you're gonna have to watch her grow up with her ha- her half Native American brother, stepbrother, in a house raised by actual immigrants. And you know, I think that's something Ford likes to do. That America is a melting pot, and America is America changed, and you have to accept the changes. You have to move and grow otherwise you're going to be wandering the plains uh a haunted man looking for your next uh act of violence to keep you going i mean that's very true and i think kind of an important statement that sh- should be made today of all of all times i mean in all, which, in all you know, honesty um, which makes it you know one of the many reasons why this movie's aged so well is because for as much as it makes that mistake in at least in terms of the tone of how it handles the wife scene, there's so much progressive thinking without being didactic that it has aged better than some. Sure, you watch a movie like, from 1956 where John Wayne is kind of a raging animal, and you go, okay, you 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 see the themes that are timeless and aren't handholdy, and it feels more mature and more honest than if it was just telling you looking right to the camera. And this is why you should accept the American dream for what it is. Well, I mean, yeah, like on that same note, how many, how many baby boomers right now are, uh, destroying their relationship with their children based on their idiotic following of the, their cult leader. Oh, you can, yeah. I mean, you can say the name. We're not going to, we we can lose them. I don't care. How many yeah, puppet fuck. baby boomers are losing their relationship with their children because their children are like, I can't handle your bigoted thoughts or your bigoted uh, opinions. It should even even before Trump. Like, let's be honest. The, you know, uh, when gay marriage was legalized in this country in our lifetimes, not just in our lifetimes, in the last ten years, how many people? Yeah. I'm sure you know personally. I'm sure we know personally that have lost their relationships with their families because they just cannot accept 
the idea that gender is fluid, that things are different, that it's not just black and white. Man marries woman, woman goes to work, men, uh, women stay at home, men go to work. And now, you know, it's, 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 that's why it's so timeless. Like as much as we like to pat ourselves on the back and say, look at how far we've come. We still have a lot of like, have we though? Yeah. One thing I want to do, and I try and do this every time, because uh, on our High Noon episode that I believe Kyle can attest, the raw audio was just <laughs> longer than most movies. Uh, and certainly longer than the movie High Noon. Uh, the episode, I believe, is longer than the film. But um, we Two spent, hours and 15 minutes. Yeah, oh, we, spent, we spent so much time talking about the script and the symbolism of the script. And I want to make sure that we talk about the technical elements, too. Because there is something about... Oh. Yeah. This movie Y'all is. Y'all are some goddamn nerds, aren't you? What? <laughs> Y'all are some goddamn nerds, aren't you? No, but like this movie is beautifully shot. The <laughs> shock of I mean, this. Fucking gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Here's the thing. I I love westerns and I love a lot of old westerns. But the fact is, when you watch Stagecoach or even High Noon or whatever, they're in a town and you kind of just go like, okay, this is a set on the lot. When you see those beautiful. Uh, wide, wide shots. Yeah, those widescreen shots. That are definitely you... not in Texas. But okay. <laughs> Monument Valley, baby. John Ford wants to fuck a piece of land. But like, you want to climb inside of it. Like, immediately, I, I swear to God, when I was watching this, I, I was watching it and I saw those, you know, those shots of the horses running through the desert and I just thought, I should buy Red Dead 2. I should do it. I should bite the bullet. What the like hell it is something. So I wanted to have it. Already. Yeah, why haven't you done it already? Are yeah, you kidding you me? You just invoked the boy. Because I don't play. I don't play video games. I didn't used to play video games much. Uh, it you wasn't until my bitch. Correct. No, now I do. Pre quarantine. <laughs> no, seriously. Pre quarantine, I didn't. Pre quarantine, I did not use my PlayStation Four for anything other than a Blu-ray or DVD player for years. And now that I'm, I have nothing else to do. Uh, I will take time out of prepping for this show and all that to occasionally uh fortnite's one of them uh you know, like kingdom hearts i i got back into because i bought kingdom hearts 3 uh a couple of some old vintage games and there's there's more i intend to catch up on uh, some old nba games things like that but that's a complete diatribe the point is i did want to talk about the visuals and uh you mentioned sierra you know, a clearly not shot in texas so i, I do want to address like you're you're from yeah texas and oh, i yeah. let's Let's really, I really want to talk about it from that vantage point as well. well, Uh, I will say, I'm sorry, you're not the first Texan we've had on the show. And I I hope that's you. I know. Justin Jones and Lupita Mendez Jones were both here for Gone with the Wind, and they are both uh, Texans as well. But, uh, but you got a Texas movie, so you can really dive into that. I mean, that, that all depends on the order of release of these episodes, my friend. I could be first. That's true. Movie magic, bud. That's. Uh, let's talk about this, you know, and, and let's talk about it from a visual perspective. Um, you know, and you, you, for us, like obviously Tom and I are nerding out about how this looks, but you, you mentioned, you know, it did not feel like that was, uh, that was Texas. And then what, what, I mean, like Texas is a big place and the landscape. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if we've told you or not, but Texas is big. Um, (laughs) but it's like the landscape of Texas is pretty diverse, but what we saw in this movie was clearly uh, to the west of Texas. Um, like I, it's certainly no landscape that I've experienced. Uh, specifically, the, the the rock formations that you see. Like I, I mean, I'm I'm from the part of the the state 
it was referred to as the hill country. Um, so I, there's a lot of, uh, lots of hills, lots of rivers and lots of like bodies of water, but like right smack dab in the middle of the state. Um, but yeah, like I said, there are parts of Texas that do like Lubbock is nothing but dry desert red. It's just red. Um, but like, yeah, certainly, certainly not what this movie was showing. And like, you, what'd you say? No, it was where Arizona Monument Valley. There you go. Yeah. Now, I, I want to ask this here before I move on to one of our last little segments, which is, um, would it have felt more authentically Texas to you if uh, when they were sitting by the campfire, Ethan and Martin were eating Whataburger? That would that have felt yeah. more. Exactly. That would have felt more Texas to yeah, you. Yeah, one hundred percent. And they like they went and got some beers at an HEB. Yeah. Do you just want to rattle off more Texas references? I mean, we're going to have some listenership down there. Yeah, so if you want to okay, just, you know, so there's Dr Pepper. There's uh, wait, the, wait a minute. Is the implication there that we do not have Dr. Pepper? Because yeah. I have some in my fridge right now. No, we invented it, so oh. kiss my ass. Uh, we're, I might just, I'm it. just rattling off Texas brands. Um, <laughs> Big Red, you don't have Big Red, so you can kiss my a ass. Gum? Wait, isn't, yeah, isn't it gum? No, Big Red is a red soda. It's cream soda, but it's really? red. You've never had, of course you've never had Big Red. Because right, there's Big Red gum, but I've never had... No, okay. no, 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 no. Okay, so if that's what's in your head, you're completely wrong of the uh, flavor profile. <laughs> he's not wrong. It does exist. <laughs> no, he's wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> We've now... Sarah, 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 you have to remember, these guys also haven't had Fago either. Oh, That's okay. not true. I've had Fago. I oh, would... good. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, that's you and no, your Michigan shit. I would, I would never... Ever? <laughs> How dare you even insinuate that I might in my life sully my fucking glands with that piss water from Michigan? You I'm are, sorry. You are Tom doesn't want to ch- a whole bunch of juggalos right now, bud. I was gonna say Tom doesn't want to chug the juggalo juice, baby. All right, fuck. <laughs> Wait, can I just take a moment to address before we bring it back around? And I don't know if this will stay in the episode or not. I, a little bit at least has to because I like that we've now created a precedent during this episode about John Ford's The Searchers. We have gone off on a Texas Brands tangent. Yes. In season I, I, two's... I currently got the horns lifted up proudly. Um, hook them horns, y'all. In season two, we have already booked an episode with Patrick Kotner about John Ford's How Green Was My Valley that will involve a conversation about the PlayStation game Jedi Power Battles. So we've established a precedent that every John Ford movie will have some <laughs> strange <laughs> off-topic diatribe. Tune in for Grapes of Wrath at some point. Who knows what else will come up, everyone. But I do want to touch on one more thing um, before we we wrap this up, which is uh, I always try and end talking about the Oscars. And this is, uh, you know, many people consider it the fundamental Western, the greatest American Western, one of the greatest films of all time. And as uh, the registry points out, New York Magazine called it the most influential movie in American history. So without cheating uh, or without Tom saying anything, Sierra, how many Oscar nominations do you think this film got? Oh, shit. If you were just, like, going to guess, like, what things it was nominated for, like, what things do you think it got nominated for? Cinematography, I'm sure. Okay. Um, I'll say Best Supporting Actress, because of who it was, Miss Natalie Wood. And maybe Best Actor? Okay. The correct answer is zero. Oh, shit! It got zero nominations. 
okay. at all. Completely shut out. Wow. The nominees that year for Best Picture were William Wineley's Friendly Persuasion, which is a film about, uh, as I mentioned, Quakers deciding whether or not to fight in the Civil War stars Gary Cooper and Anthony Perkins. Not for nothing. I've I watched watch that because it sounds hella interesting. No, I. it's actually pretty good. I, I watched it. Uh, I like it quite a bit. Ronald Reagan apparently presented it to, I think, Gorbachev as like a way to go. Hey, uh, there are ways to to fight without uh, having a war or whatever. Right. Okay. okay. So you have friendly persuasion. You have Giant, the epic uh, American saga starring Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, and the, at that point, uh, deceased James Dean. Oh, damn. Um, which Dean also got nominated uh, posthumously for that. Uh, you have The Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille's biblical epic. <laughs> you have The King and I, which I got to be honest, it feels very weird to sit here and talk about the problems of a movie that tried to address racism and maybe failed when you've got The King and I, a movie that is, to uh, use an expression Sierra might use, hella racist. Yep, I would say that. Here's what's crazy about The King and I. Uh, I don't even remember what age I was when I found out Yul Brenner wasn't Asian, but the answer is too old. Oh, damn, dude. <laughs> I, I had no idea. And I remember, like, because the first thing I ever saw him was The King and I, and I remember, like, till I was way too old thinking, wow, that is really cool that not only did an Asian actor win an Oscar and a Tony for the same role, but he got to be in The Magnificent Seven. He got to be in Westworld. That's so cool. And then I found out, nope, Russian. You uh, fool! Yeah, yeah. Um, well, but I, I know talk didn't. about we didn't even talk about the brown face in this movie. Old Scar is a white man. Yeah, I think that's mainly just an issue with the studio saying, "Yeah, you got to cast a white guy in a role that's important," because um, every all the other Native characters are Native American. John Ford was like famous in the Native American community. They loved him because they're like, "Oh, John Ford's making a movie. Get in the truck. We're getting a job." Not just that, that it was, it was, there were so many people that were doing, uh, watching the special features, uh, in Monument Valley where they were filming other, uh, Native American tribes would like set up shop and literally just, uh, make money off the crew. But, and then when you move to like Cheyenne Autumn, it's all Native American actors. I mean, I think, the, uh, I think it was on My Darling Clementine or something, like they built that town and the Native American population there was like, Oh, thank, thank you, John Ford. You built an actual town for us because we didn't have anything. And he's just like, yeah, sure, live here. I don't care. It's like, yeah, you deserve <laughs> to be here. Like, uh, I'm like, it's weird that you didn't have a place to live. So here, here's a fully functioning town now that uh, Warner Brothers, I assume, I don't remember who made it, uh, just uh, built for me. And uh, yeah, I'm going to make like 20 more movies that you guys can uh, work on. So uh, hit me up. Call also, my people. I do just want to say one last thing. So I mentioned the other nominees, which are Friendly Persuasion, Giant, King and I, Ten Commandments. The winner, because in a year that shut out the searchers, the quintessential uh, American Western. Bohemian Rhapsody. Close. <laughs> Around the World in 80 Days. Oh, yeah, that, that, that You know that, that film that we are all, I mean, everyone watches it every year. It's, uh, you know, we love it. It's uh, Around the World in 80 Days. I watch it um, every Arbor Day. Yeah, I... <laughs> I will, I will say I was fat. I, Around the World in 80 Days is a very long movie. And if you want to talk about problematic things, Shirley MacLaine is in it. And she's not playing a white person. Oh, um, damn. There you go. Um, well, to, uh, to, to jump off uh, you describing friendly persuasion, 
Uh, Sierra, you might actually like uh, Wagon Master, John Ford's Western from 1950, because it's about uh, a group of Mormons being run out of their town because the, the, the Christians don't want them there. And uh, two, uh, two horse wranglers have to uh, tra- help them travel to the San Juan Valley so they could have a place to live without being persecuted. Uh, as they accidentally pick up a gang of uh, thieves that are on the run from uh, the sheriffs. Okay. Uh, just also one other thing, just because um, we were talking before, Ward Bond, love him. If we were doing this thing, um, we, that quest, the episode we asked the question, uh, un, uh, character actor you wish people talked more about, I would say Ward Bond, because I've been watching so much John Ford, he's in it. I think it's pretty ingenious in the scripting of this movie to have Ward Bond be not just a preacher, but also the local sheriff conflating uh, something we think about in America that uh, religion is uh, justice or, you know, something of that effect. And as a little tease for uh, what will be our next week's episode, in that Oscar year, I just want to note, in that Oscar year, nominated for Best Director for a film starring John Ford's other collaborator, Henry Fonda, King Vidor was nominated for War and Peace in 1956, and I believe next episode we will be talking about uh, King Vidor's The Crowd. So we'll get to kind of find that little gap bridge there. I watched War and Peace, Audrey Hepburn playing a Russian you kind of buy, Henry Fonda playing a Russian is kind of like John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. You don't quite uh, ride along with it. Sierra, did you have anything else you wanted to add before we uh, we wrapped up this evening? I, I think I should take the opportunity to mention my favorite John Wayne fact. Um, like, for those that don't know me, know that I am 100% obsessed with one Kurt Russell. And my favorite of his works was Big Trouble in Little China. And, like, it's the character that he is playing in that movie is just John Wayne. And I love that, like, John Carpenter clearly gave him the, uh, like, the direction. Okay, he's an idiot, and he's in way over his head, uh, but he needs to act like he's in, he's in charge. And old Kurt go, goes like, all right, I've got it. And he just does fucking John Wayne, and it's beautiful. And perfect. Not the only time he's done John Wayne, either. Hateful Eight, baby. It's true, it's true. But, like... Also, uh, Django Unchained, now now that I'm thinking about it, uh, takes some big structural uh, cues from this movie of, uh, I don't know, you know, like how people got mad that Django didn't kill Calvin because Calvin's not actually his problem. I feel like there's a correlation there between Jeffrey Hunter killing Scar, even though you would think the hero, John Wayne, would be the one to kill the quote-unquote bad guy. Which is interesting, because Quentin Tarantino hates John Ford. He said it. He hates him. I think Quentin Tarantino talks a lot. <laughs> no, I think he said it in multiple interviews that he... No, I know, I know. But he, 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 may, he may hate John Ford, but I wouldn't doubt if that deranged little mind of his has just taken inspiration from John Ford without even realizing it, because there's there's just no way you make Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight and the way he shoots it without having John Ford in mind. He also wrote about uh, John Ford on uh, the New Bev website during quarantine, because he's just decided to take up the new hobby during quarantine of film critic. Um, <laughs> uh, he wrote a long thing about John Ford, and uh, I think he may have changed his tune at some point. I don't know. He's changed his tune throughout his career. Uh, as Mike likes to always point out, his film company's name is A Band Apart, and he now very vociferously 
says, I hate Jean-Luc Godard. Oh, no, no. He doesn't say, I hate Jean-Luc Godard. If he said, I hate Jean-Luc Godard, it wouldn't make me as angry. It's his, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's his contemptual, you know, after a certain point, you outgrow Godard. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. In this regard, Godard. Oh, I man. agree with him. All right. <laughs> well, on that fun note, uh, Sierra, I want to thank you so much for joining us. You're very uh, welcome. Coming on for this. My, I know. My time is wonderful, and you're so welcome for it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really glad that you came by and, and taking a chance on this one. We'll be happy to have you back on, on future seasons, whether you, uh, end up picking something, uh, from the list or, I don't know, maybe we'll just throw another one at you that you, hey. that you've never seen, you know, maybe hey. we'll just, uh, if the Sapruder film. That list, I'm down. The Sapruder film. What did you say, Sierra? I said if uh, if Johnny Guitar is on that list. Ooh, I think uh, I'm not sure. Is it? It is. It's. Uh, I got some bad news for you, Sierra. God damn it! When? Um, you, you want the bad news? Um, so picture. You know, we've every season has about 25 episodes. You've only got 52 weeks in a year, which means that we only cover about two seasons a year at okay. most. And this, this, right? This started in 1989. They they started yes. doing this in 1989. Okay. Johnny Guitar would be in season 20, which means it would be if we stick to a weekly release schedule and never miss a week, it'll be 10 years. Hey, well, we'll circle back and uh, we'll see again and remember this conversation. But I want to talk about Joan Crawford's big dick energy and that very, <laughs> very lesbian movie. I'll fight anybody that has a different opinion on that. Uh, oh, you, are you saying Nicholas Ray made a movie with some homosexual uh, undertones? One hundred percent. Sierra, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I love you guys. On that note, what did you guys, or what would you guys include in the registry that isn't already included? So I was thinking about the registry, and I actually had a couple of films in consideration before my rewatch of the searchers and i may bring the i'm probably going to bring these up on other episodes before i watch the searchers i was probably going to come in and talk about this animated short called thank you masked man that animates a, a lenny bruce routine about the lone ranger and kind of uh serves as a takedown of the western icon then i rewatched searchers and I started thinking about another film, more modern film that dealt with our racist history uh, in in Texas, which is Lone Star by John Sayles. But the more I thought about it, the more I started thinking about how this film is a correction or trying to be a correction of cinema's history of dehumanizing the Native Americans, which is one of the great sins of American cinema. Is the way that it propagated horrendous stereotypes of Native Americans. And I started trying to think about where that came from. And one of the things I love about the National Film Registry is when they induct things, sometimes they induct collections of uh, kind of shorts, ethnographic shorts or home movies, things like that. And so on that note, there's something that they're, they're missing that I think is, is fundamental to the evolution of cinema. Back in the late 1800s, in 1894, um, a traveling show happened to pass through New Jersey. Uh, and while they were there, Thomas Edison's uh, Black Maria Studio brought them in. And the director there, uh, William K.L. Dixon, who is notable for all of the early 
Edison shorts that you see, you know, the blacksmith scene or Newark athlete, you know, these, these little clips that we've all seen, um, filmed them. Now that show was, uh, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. And so much of our understanding of the American West, the mythology of it comes from Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. And there were particularly three films that Dixon did that are each about 16 seconds long, which is why, by the way that the registry works, they would probably all be inducted in one. Um, one is Annie Oakley, the actual Annie Oakley, uh, doing some trick shots. But the other two are the Buffalo Dance and the Sioux Ghost Dance. This is, I believe, the earliest films featuring Native Americans. And I find it such an interesting image and such an interesting piece of film history because on the one hand uh dixon is attempting to do some kind of ethnography some kind of capture of uh, tribal traditions uh and if you watch buffalo dance or or sue ghost dance they're there in the the full regalia uh the war paint and war costumes uh doing this dance but at the same time one has to wonder how much of that is authentic because he's not capturing going to a Native American tribe and, and capturing it. He's getting performers, actual Native Americans, but performers from Buffalo Bill's Wild West show where th- these Native Americans were being brought in to portray bloodthirsty savages attacking carriages that the, that the cavalry would, would valiantly uh, fight off. And so as such, uh, one has to wonder, you know, uh, the actual uh, ghost dance was meant to be a signal that trouble was about to break up, that something bad was about to happen. But but the Wild West show didn't actually use it for that. They used it uh, to show like it was a war dance. So so much got lost in translation uh, through that performance that I I just find it so compelling that this is something that perhaps and I certainly don't know William Dixon's mind, but that Dixon was maybe trying to capture. Oh, let's get authentic. Native American behavior on film, but that even that had been so watered down by Buffalo Bill uh, and his romanticization and fictionalization of the West that our earliest filmed depictions of what we think of as Native American culture were already distorted by the idea of the Wild West. And and you can just see where Buffalo Dance and Sue Ghost Dance evolve into the antagonistic Native Americans of the American Western for decades to come. So I think just for how fundamental, uh, even now to look at a 16 second clip and watch as some of these Native American performers are looking into the camera and there's such a sadness to it. Um, I think that that's, I, I would put the Dixon Edison films of the Buffalo Bill Wild West show in the registry. All right. My pick is I was, you know, I wanted to go with something that was dealing it within the Native American aspects of this thing and uh, the John Ford growth and everything and the Western and all this. And um, I'm really not going to do a long preamble to it. It really isn't going to be a surprise. I mentioned it in the show. Uh, I'm going to go with Ford Apache here. Um, uh, John Ford has 11 movies in this National Film Registry, and I think there's room for a few more. Uh, I think Fort Apache has to be in there, especially uh, for the most represented filmmaker in here. 
uh, as the movie where you see the change, the change that allows him to get to a place where he can make a movie like The Searchers. It's um, and it's 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 a great movie. It's Henry Fonda and John Wayne, and like I said, it's about getting into the way America and the military and politicians screwed over uh, the Native Americans. About how um, Henry Fonda is basically playing Custer, and uh, the movie is not very subtle, which is good in this movie. Is in that uh, a lot of what the military is doing and what they were doing to the native Americans was this thing about class and about, well, we're honorable men and these native, these Indians are savages. They're not honorable. So anything they do is bad and anything I do is good. So I need to stop them. And it really throws into focus how backwards uh, this all is Uh, a good chunk of the movie spent with the, uh, the cavalry in uh, the titular Fort Apache. And you get to know all these men. You get to see Fonda as this fussy uh, glory hound. You see Wayne as this um, sort of every man that rose up the captain and has a good relationship with Cochise. And he actually uh, respects the natives and doesn't see them as these uh, subhuman savages. And you get the sense that uh, all the other guys really don't hate the natives either. They're just soldiers and they have their orders, so they have to do something. They do it. But when the shift comes and Fonda has Fonda tells him we got we're gonna go betray them and we're gonna probably kill them. You get you see all the soldiers like, well, this is kind of fucked up. I find it very interesting that it's asking you to sort of wrangle with, well, these guys didn't want to do it, they but they still did it. But we spend all this time getting to know them and like them. So it, it's this weird moral thing that I think Ford's really wrangling with, which is, uh, you know, yeah, sure, these guys had a job to do, and the natives did fight back, and they lost friends, and they this, that, and the other, but if it was all for nothing, it, it was all for a glory hound to get his name back out of the muck in the military, and where and he's more dishonorable than any of the natives could ever even think to be it, can you still like these guys what what's going on here i think it's just a pretty brilliant movie um fonda's incredible wayne's <laughs> wayne's fine he uh is given he's he's done no favors by having to act next to henry fonda but i think it's a great movie it's the start uh of a new phase of ford's career in the uh, the Western genre, and uh, it's his third movie after the war. I think if you want to have so much Ford in here, if you have a stagecoach, if you have a Liberty Valance, if you have a The Searchers, um, you need this movie because it is what bridges the gap between stagecoach and The Searchers, and then thus Liberty Valance. I think it's great. Um, I actually think it would make a pretty great double feature um, if theaters uh, survive. Uh, 2020. Yeah, so I, I, I think Fort Apache should uh, absolutely be in there. I think it's actually pretty uh, respectful for 1947, uh, 10 years before we get to uh, the searchers. Uh, I think this movie's pretty great. That's uh, my pick. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Sierra Webb for joining us. You can follow her on Instagram at cwibble. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. 
You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at Raging Bull 1990. And you can find me at Theatricality with a K. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.